hi to everyone online, everyone here, especially to my peeps. That is my young adults, staff members, to youth. You will eventually be mine, youth, so get ready for it. Anyway, hi everyone, and once again, good morning. Um, if you guys want to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, that's going to be the sort of the foundational piece of what I will be sharing on this morning, especially as we go through the crucifixion of Christ to his uh, resurrection. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, uh, if you guys want to open up in your physical Bibles or electronic, your phone, whatever it may be. So as you're opening up there, since this is our sort of Easter weekend service, you know what I want to talk about? I want to talk about poutine and the history of poutine, okay? And so look, here's the historical sort of background of poutine and how it came to be. According to online historians, poutine was created in about 1950. They can't give you an exact date, but around that time, 1950 was where poutine was created in Quebec. The original recipe actually started with just fries and then just cheese. And they served it in a brown paper bag, but then a complaint happened, which was the grease would sort of run through and you know it was hard to sort of get in, it was, it was quite messy. So they sort of, re, sort of reinvented it and then they, they started to serve it on a, on a dish, on an actual plate. And eventually there was another complaint. And the complaint was that as they served it on a plate, the fries got cold too quickly. So then they decided to pour on some hot gravy. So poutine now has become this sort of tr traditional Canadian snack. It's served all the way from fast food chains to the finest of restaurants. But Quebecois, who claim to have created this dish, have seen poutine sort of change all throughout the years. You know, in order to sort of serve it to the masses, you sort of had to change it and, and tweak it a bit more. And so the recipe, the ingredients themselves had to change a little bit. To a Quebecois, the Canadians have sort of destroyed the dish. Partly because we've used either cheap fries to non-squeaky cheese, all the way to watered down gravy. So what may seem like poutine to the rest of the world, to Quebecoisa, it's a travesty. And the truth is, there are good reasons why some things never change. This also applies to the Easter story. In recent years, Christians have wanted to change the image and also the message of Jesus. Some have wanted to change the image of Jesus to be a bit more modern, like up to date. They want Jesus sort of, you know, winking at you with one eye, holding either a craft beer or a latte in one hand, giving you the thumbs up on the other, with the most epic waxed beard. Some have even dared to suggest that we as modern Christians need to actually move away from the cross. Why? Because for the cross, for some, the cross is outdated, it's unkind, it's violent. It has no place in the modern world. So this morning, in light of everything we have just heard, 
The cross of Christ is where I will begin and the resurrection is where I will end. So let me read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. And it says this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, of which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So there's two things I really want to focus on this morning, two very simple things. First is the cross of Christ and what that means. But also the second thing will be the resurrection of Christ and what that means. So let's start with the cross of Christ. I'm going to start here from a quote from a 19th century Anglican bishop of Liverpool, England, J.C. Ryle. When talking about what it would be like to preach Jesus without the cross, J.C. Ryle says, I would feel like a soldier without arms, an artist without his pencil, a pilot without his compass, or a labourer without his tools. Let others, if they desire, preach the law and morality. Let others hold forth the terrors of hell and the joys of heaven. Let others drench their congregations with teachings about the sacraments in the church. But give me the cross of Christ. So let's start there. So the Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that's the beginning of the New Testament, they spend about one third of their entire content on the final week of Jesus' life. Like how a movie sort of zooms in into like the main character at the most important scene of the movie. So the Bible, the whole Bible, the climax of it is the crucifixion of Christ. See, without the cross, the movie doesn't end. There is no ending. It has to keep going. See, I'll be taking sort of bits and pieces from the Gospel of Matthew, in particular chapter, chapter 27, to give us this picture of the cross of Christ and what it means for us. If you look at Matthew chapter 27, one of the key words it, is, it uses in the preparation of Christ himself and his crucifixion is this. It talks about that Jesus being scourged. Now, many pass over this because we sort of want to get to the best parts of the movie, the parts that sort of make us feel good. But we have to understand the scourging of Jesus. And this is what it would have physically meant. So physically, Jesus would have been tied to a post. He would have been beaten with a leather whip. And at the end of the leather whip would have been metal, uh, balls of metal and with bits of bone on the whip. They would have whipped him with it to tenderize his body as if you would beat a piece of steak to tenderize it, to soften it up. The whip, the metal, the, the bone itself would rip through skin and tissue and at times it would expose bone and even intestines. The Roman soldiers 
would scourge the flesh of the back, the arms, the legs, the neck, and even the face. This is why the prophet Isaiah in chapter 52, hundreds of years before Jesus will be scourged, will be beaten with a whip, he says in chapter 52 that his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance. The gospel accounts tell us that Jesus is then having to carry the cross, or some would say the cross beam itself. So after being scourged, being beaten to a pulp, Jesus is made to walk with the cross or the cross beam. The cross itself would have weighed about 300 pounds or just the cross beam that he would have been tied to as he's walking along with it it would have been around 70 to 90 pounds. I know that in most churches, including us here at Northview, like this cross behind me, we've made it nice and smooth and aesthetically pleasing. Not just this cross, but maybe the ones on the outside that you drive past. But the truth is, the cross would not be nice or clean, or smooth. It would have been rough and full of splinters because wood was expensive. And the Roman Empire would have recycled wood or reused the crosses. The cross would have been covered with blood, sweat, and likely urine and feces of the countless other men who were crucified before Jesus. And in regards to the crucifixion, Roman soldiers would have driven five to seven inch metal spikes through Jesus' wrists and feet. The crucifixion was meant to be done in a public place. If it was done here in Abbotsford, it would probably be done around Seven Oaks Moor, right in the front, right there in the parking lot for all to see, to see a bloody naked man. I know there are many paintings, you know what I mean? Old paintings of Jesus on a cross. And I have a covering over his private parts. But the truth is Jesus was most likely naked on the cross to add to the shame. Those crucified like Jesus would have no control over their bowels throughout their time on the cross, sort of adding even more to the public shame. And those crucified, like Jesus, would have been crucified actually quite low to the ground. Why? So the public could look them dead in the eye and to mock them as people mocked Jesus and said, come down and save yourself. The pain was so horrendous not only did the Roman Empire eventually ban crucifixions because it was just it was too much, it was too violent, but they had to invent a word to explain the pain of the crucifixion. It comes from uh, two parts of a Latin word. The first part is ex, which is translated as from or out of, and crux, the cross. So if you put those words together, it would literally mean from or out of the cross. 
there's this pain. And it's where we get the English word excruciate. For many, it just seems so bloody, barbaric, and brutal. Could there not be another way? In the PBS in the US, PBS documentary series on Christianity, they state this. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. The only one. So why the cross? The Bible tells us very clearly in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that in all of us, every single one of us, you and me, we've all sinned. We've all wronged God by trying to live our lives without him, to be gods ourselves. The Bible tells us and shares with us that we are sinful, broken and separated from God and we're in desperate need of saving. We were made for this sinless and perfect relationship with God to reflect his glory and to enjoy him forever and to enjoy that relationship. Simply put, the brutality of the cross points to the weight and the offence of our sins towards God. And that Jesus takes on that weight and offence that we deserve. So what are we called to do? What what does the Bible call us to do? Rosaria Butterfield puts it really well. And she says, we are called to repent of the original sin that distorts us. The actual sin that distracts us and the indwelling sin that manipulates us. This is a high and hard calling. I know maybe historically you've heard that maybe just coming to Jesus and saying sorry is going to be enough. But why is being sorry for our sins not enough is my question. Imagine that I invited you over for dinner to my place. You would have to imagine it because COVID won't let you come to my house. You would have to imagine, you know what I mean? Come over to my house, I'll give you a call and I warn you before you come to my house, look, my, my driveway's quite short and small and it's, and it's shaped really awkwardly, but come over, but be careful. As you drive there, you forget. And then when you get there, you drive and you drive into my garage door and you damage it. You crash into it, it's like destroyed. Now, automatically, you know what you're going to do? You're going to say, sorry, oh, Vin, I'm so sorry. But sorry doesn't fix my garage. Someone has to pay. Someone has to pay for my damaged garage door. Either you pay or I pay. But someone needs to pay. See, part of the good news is that God does not abandon us in his rightful anger. He doesn't just leave us there to figure it out or demand for us to work really hard so that the garage door is magically fixed. The cross of Christ shows us that God himself coming as Jesus, demanding not our blood as payment, not your child's blood as payment, 
but shedding his own blood, which is historically the very opposite of paganism. Jesus pays the price to fix the damage that you and I caused. See, this is why the Bible calls us to repent, not just to feel bad or say sorry for one's sin, but also to surrender one's life. Oh, but there's more. This is where as the Apostle Paul who wrote a lot of the New Testament and 1 Corinthians, what I just read earlier, as he goes on to, as he keeps going back to the cross of Christ and he explains the, the death of Jesus and what it means, he uses, and what he calls Jesus, he uses a very old word called propitiation. What does that word mean? It's a very old-fashioned word. Some Bible translations like the NIV will use the term sacrifice of atonement or just atonement. The problem with that is it only explains half of what the cross achieved, only half. Look, it's correct that the cross of Christ sort of pardons, gives us a way to pardon the sins of those who believe and put their trust in Jesus. Some other translations will use the word propitiation. So yes, one half of the word, it talks about the atonement of sacrifice. That's what one half of propitiation means. But the other half means to turn away wrath, to appease, to satisfy anger, to turn it into favour. It brings into view a very important part of the meaning of the cross of Christ. See, modern, many modern Christians cringe when we use old Bible language like that, especially propitiation. They will say, let's not stress. Stop stressing about the anger and wrath of God. But this thought shows that these people don't know how a heart actually works. As it was said earlier, I have two daughters. And of course, as a dad, as a dad of two daughters, I'm, yeah, I'm a little bit nervous about them dating boys. Why? Why am I nervous? Why is every father nervous about their daughters? Because just like you and I, we all assume that every boy that they would date will be like a jerk like us. Especially when I was a boy. Ask Pastor Mark, I'm still a jerk. If my daughters came to me to tell me that they were abused by a boy or a young man, whatever it is, emotionally or even physically, I should get angry. For those who don't know me, or I've heard earlier, I've been to prison before. I'm not afraid to go back because of my daughters. I couldn't look at my daughter if she came to me broken, crying, abused. There's no way I could look her dead in the eye and tell her, hey, let's just love and forgive that person. And let's just move on. If I didn't get angry, you would question me as a father and my love for my child. Would you not? See, God's wrath is not about crankiness. It's actually about justice against sin and evil in the world. The cross of Christ does not only take away 
our sin, but he also appeases the wrath of God. That's the beauty and the weight of the cross. Let's move to the resurrection. Though I will spend less time on the resurrection, do not for one second think that this is of less importance. If you actually go on to read the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you did in one sitting, the author, the apostle Paul, goes on to write that without Jesus being raised from the dead, then we as a people and those who believe are still dead in our sin. Paul will go on to say, you're, you're, you're a hopeless people. We are a hopeless people if Jesus does not raise again and come back to life. See, the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee. It's the proof that God has accepted Jesus' death on the cross as enough. The payment was sufficient to fix the garage door that we damaged. The owner looks at that and says, okay, that's good. That's the payment I want of life. And because Jesus, I mean, God has raised Jesus from the dead, he can make us alive with Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. So if God can do it with Jesus, he can do it with us as well. See, the Apostle Paul who penned this letter goes on in the same chapter to tell his readers that Jesus, after his death, after he raises back to life, he shows himself to over 500 witnesses to show them they're still alive, even daring one of his disciples, go, touch me. That I'm not this ghostly figure, but I'm, I'm alive, I'm real. Paul then actually goes on to list a few names that saw the resurrected Jesus. See, Paul didn't just list any type of people. He listed names that the church knew at that time, people who were still alive, that the church could go on and go and ask, oh, is, Paul, is what Paul is saying true? And lastly, Paul says that he himself saw the resurrected Jesus. So if you can't ask them, go and ask me. See, Paul keeps on proving that the resurrection is an actual fact and not a myth that was made up. And the Apostle Paul moves from divine revelation from where you know, God reveals himself through scripture and then moves on in the chapter through to general revelation. See, Paul goes on to say that nature itself points to a resurrection. He actually says, oh, like a seed. If you plant it in the ground, it sort of dies, but then it sprouts in sort of like a different form. So what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for us today, this morning? There are two points I really want to end with. And that's this. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus proves that God cares about the physical body. Our bodies and the bodies of others are not to be mistreated or, be, or to be thrown away or to be discarded. God deeply cares about us physically and spiritually. The resurrection proves that God wants to make us whole. 
He wants us to be a whole human. A, hu- a whole human that does not tire or goes hungry or weeps. Because death, he says, will be a distant memory. The resurrection of Jesus is really good news for us as humans. And secondly, the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope. Hope not just for today, but also for tomorrow. As I mentioned before, yeah, I was in prison for drug dealing. And there was a lot of things I learned in prison. But one thing stands out. There are two types of guys who sort of, you know, you sort of, that end up in prison. But how they function in prison, there's only two types of guys that sort of end up in there. On one hand, you have guys with no hope. No hope of getting out. But also, they have no hope of anyone on the outside waiting for them. Most of their wives and girlfriends eventually tell them it's, it's too long from the sentence maybe being too long or the wives or girlfriends eventually having to tell them or another friend who gets arrested and goes into prison and telling them, hey, your girlfriend's gone, man. She's dating someone else. Because the people on the outside need to sort of move on. The wives and girlfriends need to find some other type of support and love and affection and all these things. And when they, these guys that I, I would personally know and engage with, when they hear the news, you know what happens? They're crushed. And I can see them sort of mentally and physically turn to a dark place. Why? Because with no hope on the other side, there's no use of caring about life now, today. On the other hand, you have guys with hope when they know with certainty that there are loved ones waiting for them on the other side, their wives, their girlfriends, and a lot of them, their children, they say stuff like, oh man, I've got to change. I've got to do better for my family and for myself because there's people waiting for me on the other side. The hope that they have of what's waiting for them on the other side changes the way they view themselves, their day, and their circumstances. So let me conclude with this. If Jesus is your crucified and resurrected Lord and Saviour, then something like COVID is still soul-crushing and you have every right to complain. But as a Christian, we also have a hope that nobody else has So let's live like there's something on the other side waiting for us because that'll change the way we live and the way we deal with our circumstances. But if Jesus is not your crucified and resurrected Lord and Saviour, then something like COVID would be still soul crushing. And you still have every right to complain just like me. But by the end of it, when COVID's all said and done, The hard thing is your only hope now, right, as of today is, your only hope is for COVID to end. That's it. But as soon as COVID ends, you know what happens? Something else will crush you. And you have to deal with that again. There's no hope on the other side. So turn your life to Jesus. Tell him that you regret living your life without him. 
that you tried to be a God yourself. And look at your life and where that's led you. Trust that everything that he has done on the cross is now yours and that everything that you have done is his. You know what we call that? The great exchange. So put your trust in the unchanging story of what Jesus did on that wondrous cross and the unchanging promises of his resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for what you did on the cross. For many of us who are hearing that for the first time, thank you, Jesus. And Jesus, would you help your people to respond with more than just a sorry? Would we as a people turn and surrender our lives to you? to no longer live like the way we've been trying to live, but live in a way that honours and glorifies your ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus, help us to live with, with a great sense of hope because your resurrection proves that there is hope to live for. So Jesus, may that be heavy and beautiful on our heads and our hearts. And Jesus, would you encourage your people to tell someone, to encourage someone, to reach out to someone, to pray with someone in regards to surrendering, surrendering one's life to you. So Jesus, we thank you for your unchanging story, your unchanging promises, and we look forward to the day where you rightfully claim what is yours. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.